Hey everybody, welcome back to another Identical Draw podcast. And as you guys know, this podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Uh, we love the folks over at Vortex and I want to give you guys a quick hot tip. My turkey vest is not a vest. I use the Vortex Bino Harness for everything I need in the turkey woods. I carry my binos, I carry my mouth calls in there. I can even throw a slate call and a striker in there. Um, and if you a shotgun hunter, you can throw some shells in the bino harness. You're just good to go with just that little bino harness. So, hey, turkey season is, I mean, a month and a half for some people, two months. It's coming in. Go get yourself a, a Vortex bino harness. Get to it. All right, yes, episode 13 is here. Um, we have a special guest today. Uh, we don't. We haven't had like a lot of different guests on this podcast yet, but uh, we are joined by Matt Ross. Matt, how are you doing? Hey, guys, doing well. How are you doing today? We're doing well. Um, we are going to chat about all sorts of things with Matt, but mainly um, deer management. Mm -hmm. The If anybody follows the Kansas City Land Series, there is... Like there's a lot of management stuff we got going on and a lot of it and the ideas that we kind of thought about are because of this guest that we have on with Matt. Um, Matt, you were a huge inspiration for us right off the bat. You were just one of the initial guests we had down to the 80 and just sparked a whole bunch of things for us, um, for land management, deer management, all that stuff. So we are excited to kind of talk about the changes we've made since you saw it and walked it. I mean, what was that? Two springs ago? Maybe, yeah, this, yeah, this would be almost two years ago. And, uh, I think back to how easy it was to jump on a plane and, and go, go to some place and I kind of miss it, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really anxious to get an update. Uh, I follow you guys, as you know, and, uh, I've been watching things, uh, happen on the ground and I'm constantly thinking, I wonder where they are on the property and what, and I, I can see what you're doing, but mm -hmm. what compartment are you in? And, and, uh, what are you tackling based on when we were, when we last visited? So definitely, uh, I appreciate the, the invite to the, to the podcast and, uh, anything we can help, um, from the deer association to, to you and the, and the property and your management, happy to, happy to assist. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, so quick before we get into it, give a little bit of your job description and what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm the director of conservation for the uh, National Deer Association. Um, I've been with NDA. It was formerly QDMA when, when we last met. It was the Quality Deer Management Association, but I've been with the company for almost 15 years. Um, my main role now is... Uh, I oversee our conservation department's field staff. Um, we have folks uh, around the country, um, so I help coordinate um, their daily job, what they're doing on the ground, boots on the ground conservation. Uh, I over also oversee our private lands uh, management programs. So we actually have programs for people that own land that want to manage the property for deer. Um, there are trainings people can take. Those exist online or in person. We're, we actually are having some in-person classes this year. We had, to, we had to postpone most of what we had uh, on the calendar last year, but we've been doing that for nearly almost the 15 years I've been in the role. So that's our Deer Steward Series. We also have a, a land certification program um, where people can look up 
um, a professional that will come and do a site visit and look at your property. So I oversee those two programs. Um, and then throughout the year, there's a bunch of different projects that happen that are conservation related that I'm in charge of. Um, we just came out with our annual deer report. That's mm-hmm. the kind of the status of the industry, um, heavy involved. It's our 13th one that we've ever done heavy involved in the writing and editing of that. Really. If, if your listeners haven't, it's a free download. We've, you can get every one actually. And every one is different, but if you go on the uh, deer association.com website, you can download it. So we just came out with that. That took up a good chunk of the last couple months. Um, that is we, thick. That's a thick report. So, it's amazing. Yeah. Do you guys, yeah, it's a, it, it, we got to give a shout out to all the different states and provinces. Mm-hmm. We do a survey to all the different states and ask them kind of their metrics of what's going on. And then we compile it, analyze it and do kind of a report on what we think is going on with deer harvest mm-hmm. and what it looks like. Um, any major, major issues hitting deer. So appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then kind of a laundry list of other things right now, what's hot on my to-do list is, we're hosting a uh, conference in about three weeks. It's a virtual conference uh, where really it's the place where anybody that goes to um, graduate school, masters, PhD students that do deer research present that. And we've never hosted it before. It's always a different state hosts it. And uh, this year because of COVID, it was looking like it was not going to happen. And uh, we, we put our hat in the ring and said, you know what, if, if it's, it's 40 plus years, this is the 44th annual conference. And, uh, we said, if it, if there's a chance that somebody wants to postpone it, we want to host it virtually and they let us do it. So I'm actually got many of our, my, uh, coworkers are working on it, but that's a, a conference called the Southeast Deer study group meeting. Gotcha. And, uh, it's a, it's a regional conference, but this one, because it's virtual has presentations from all over. In fact, there's, uh, a couple of Nebraska presentations in there. You can get on there, look at the agenda. Cool. Um, and for that, that, that's something I'm working on right now, but at, every quarter there's something different. Uh, and, uh, got my hands on in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so we can kind of get into some management stuff. So like we were saying almost two years ago, we had you down to the Kansas City, and we were fresh with the Kansas City cause we had only bought it. I mean, we bought it a few months before that. So yeah. we are still really figuring it remember, out. I remember walking around uh, with Matt and then we also had Alex Foster um, with us. And I remember being like, I'm not even entirely sure where I am on mm-hmm. the property right now because we were that fresh on it. But mm-hmm. um, that's changed. Yeah. So Matt, I kind of want to get your take. Like what was your, I know it's been a while, but what was your initial, like the walk about the initial vibe of that ground? Oh, I, I mean, it's been a while, but I remember it. I mean, I, I'm going a lot of land, but I, this one was unique in a couple of cases. Um, I've been to Kansas before, but not to the degree of really diving in on a piece of property. Um, I've been, been there for some professional trainings and some other things. I remember when we first met via email, you guys reached out to us mm-hmm. and uh, started talking about setting up the visit. I looked at the aerial of it and you guys did a good job. I know that I know who you worked with to, to land the property. Um, you did a good job of finding something that had cover to work with. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean somebody that has lacking cover, you can't build it. But, um, once you got up really high up on the aerial and looked at the ground, there's a lot of open commercial ag around. Um, and you guys were holding a lot of forest cover. Um, forest cover generally means cover for deer. 
Um, but so from that perspective, but once we got out there and walked, everything always looks different, right? Like when you're walking on a piece of property and, uh, there was, there was, a there was a good flow to it. I remember thinking the Creek running up the middle, which I could see on the aerial was a re- really good travel corridor for, for animals. And it, and it was apparent once we walked it on the ground that deer generally will go where a river or Creek corridors are because that's where there'll be more plant uh, mm-hmm. biomass. You see just because of the moisture in the ground, there's just going to be a lot more vegetation. And that was a really key feature um, the approach coming in, uh, was really good. Uh, but once we got into the woods, it was interesting to kind of like compartmentalize it and say, what's, what's the, the pluses, what's the minuses. Um, but overall I was like, you guys have a really good base to work from and we work together. I mean, you, you had been on it before, but we worked together to kind of figure out what compartments were what, mm-hmm. um, why they were similar or dissimilar. And then what was the potential to do with each one right. hunting and, and for uh, land management. Right. Um, so positive vibe. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's listening to this and has not seen our Kansas City episode, was it three? Yeah. Episode three, three season one, season yeah. one. Um, we have, this is, we filmed this whole thing this whole time when Matt came, you need to go watch that episode because we break down the six different management units on our 80, like in depth. So, we Matt helped us like basically map out this whole the eighty into into six different units, and each unit we kind of categorized the kind of timber that was in the unit. Um, if we would hunt it, how we would kind of go about hunting it. Um, Just different landscape changes mm-hmm. that kind of helped cut off one unit from another. Mm-hmm. Um, like our our pasture land now bean plot um, is like a different management unit from like the timber right next to it, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of been a huge baseline for how we went about managing it and also hunting it. Um, but also, I, I mean, hunting it for the first season, we, there were challenges that we didn't foresee, but there were also really easy things. Like, I mean, right off the second hunt we ever went down there, Thomas shot, I mean, his biggest buck, um, right in the edge of the bean plot. And it just was like, oh, that was easy. That was really easy. But then, I mean, since then we've had to really work for the deer. So like management has become a bigger thing. They're like, oh, like it's not super easy. You can't just plant a bean plot and try to kill a buck the second hunt on an October cold front. So and that's why, what that's what really sparked the last few years of uh, like really hands-on work. Um, and so like Matt said, like the 80 is mostly timber. Yep. I mean, like mostly timber besides um, the unit three, I'll call it, which is our bean plot pasture, some brome. Um, like no timber out there, just wide open. Um, and so that's kind of been, um, I don't know, that's been the slate off of what we've worked on. We've just worked on what timber we want there, what timber we want to get rid of, um, and things like that. And one thing, the biggest thing we're taking this year with our management season is we want better bedding cover and we want to get rid of some of the bad timber and some of the timber, like the 80, Matt, you probably remember, but a lot of it, um, along unit three on the Western side is the Osage, and uh, the locust um, along mm-hmm. that pasture, and then when you get closer to the creek, it becomes the bigger that the the hickories, and then you've got some oaks. Um, the landscape kind of changes, and then you got the walnuts over there too. Um, so some of those are good, and some of those aren't good for deer. <laughs> um, but we've done a bunch of girdling, um, and so the one of the things that sparked this podcast, Matt, is Thomas and I. We texted you because we want to. 
we want to introduce some better timber to the area because a lot of it is um, walnut, which is great for the timber market, but isn't doing much for deer. Osage, which takes up a bunch of space, isn't doing much for deer. Um, and then locust trees. And like there, there's a bunch of that on the property. And we want to create like a landscape that really invests in the wildlife and the deer. And so I just text you like, Hey, which Oak would be best to put on the ground? Cause all like my whitetail mind goes, Hey, whitetails like Oaks, let's plant some Oaks. But you're, you like, initially you were like hesitant towards that. Tell, tell me why that is. Well, so the reason I was kind of hesitant to that or said, you know, it, it's probably more than a text conversation, which mm-hmm. turned into this is, right. you know, I, I I, I trust the seed bank. I trust what mother nature mm-hmm. uh, wants to grow. So when, anytime I look at a property and think about um, managing it, um, there, there is a free resource there that you can work with. And honestly, the animals on it, deer included, have adapted to, to live off of what wants to grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about planting something, um, I always think first, um, before I even think about, uh, you know, what species, um, well, is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, what are my goals and there's a cost to it. And can I get the same response and actually not only the same, but potentially even a bigger response by managing the property with, um, fire, cutting trees, herbicides, those kinds of things that you're starting to do to, um, to, ins- uh, basically, inspired. That's not the word I'm looking for, but basically make the ground grow. What's already there. Why go buy it? It's, mm-hmm. it's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, with Oak species, there are probably some Oaks that you don't have, but maybe there's a reason that they're not there. Mm-hmm. And then Oaks are such a long lived species. You're not going to see a return from that, from the wildlife. That, that's not, this sounds bad, but like, why do you want to plant Oaks? Well, we want to provide some acorns for, for animals. That's mm-hmm. good. But are you going to realize the, um, realize that, um, unlikely you're going to see acorns coming down in your, uh, hunting career on the 80, mm-hmm. your, your, uh, kids might, and that's a good reason to plant it. But think about why you're, why you're doing it. A lot of people will start diving into doing something management wise, um, because they're, you know, they're influenced to do it because of marketing. They see bags of this or ads of that. And they say, I need that for my property. Well, honestly, um, some fuel and a chainsaw, um, a drip torch, some real basic tools. You can influence the ground to grow the stuff that it needs and that deer and turkeys and other game have adopted. So I'd say, I always ask why, always start with why, Mm -hmm. why why do you want to plant it? Mm -hmm. And if you want some oaks out there, um, are oaks already in the seed bank? Are there, is there a chance that you could grow them? And then if you do have the ability to grow that, um, are you ready to, to wait how long? I mean, really what deer need, uh, acorns are a big thing that people think about, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of deer that live without acorns in the country. Um, they're, they're, they're a supplemental source of food that it comes occasionally. Acorns are not a consistent supply of food. Right. And so I would not put all my acorns in one basket, you know, per se, where I'd say I want to spend money and spend time planting oaks because let's say you could hit a fast forward button and you plant a bunch of oaks on the property and they do grow fast and they do provide acorns. They're one every, every two to five years that they're going to provide nutrition to deer. 
a deer herd cannot sustain itself annually on acorns. Mm-hmm. They need they need food um, in other forms. One of the most common ways that they get food is through forb growth. This is like non woody plants. I know that we talked about that while we were out there. Yep. Some of the brambles, blackberry, raspberry, that kind of stuff. Um, things that grow on the edges of, of uh, clearings and openings like commercial ag. Um, you'll see lots of plants. But anything that's a non-woody broadleaf plant, soybeans are actually a forb. A large portion of a deer's diet, with the exception of dead winter, is made up of forbs. Um, and a lot of the nutrition comes from that. And you can manage to get more forbs. Um, and when you get more forbs, you get some of the soft mass, you know, other things like raspberries, um, blackberries, and, and the such. So I, if you're going to invest time and money, concentrate where you can have the biggest uh, bang for your buck. And I'd yep. say start ma- managing managing the, the earth or managing the ground, the soil, mm-hmm. to respond in a way that creates what you want. And you actually started this question with talking about bedding. Um, you know, one of the best ways to do that is designate sections. And we did that, if I remember right, mm-hmm. that you want to be designated bedding cover that has dog hair thick, some woody um, growth, some like shrubs and small saplings, but you want a lot of sunlight and you routinely burn to, to reduce the woody cover so it's a high forb content. So there's like food and cover in one place. Have you guys, um, I know you've been working on it, but ha- have you seen deer bedding in places that you were aiming for them to, to do that yet? Or has that not quite occurred? It's, it's been, it hasn't quite occurred. There's like one for sure go-to bedding area on the 80 right now. And that's, what's been so much of our work because so much of the property is just the heavy, heavy timber and like very little ground cover. And so that Southeast corner, that man management County one and two is our best bedding area. And that's where we found a bunch of sheds. We always find sheds in that area and we're trying to create more of that. So like, as far as bedding goes, we've been, we've been girdling and killing a bunch of trees, just try to get the sunlight down to the ground and we're going to hopefully burn it this winter. Um, yeah. are there any, like, what else would you say to create that, that, the best bedding cover for us? No, you're doing it. And the yeah. reason that corner was so good was because there was so much open space in the canopy. Mm-hmm. Sunlight was the driving factor there. Um, I remember standing there, um, and by, girdling and spraying trees and, and felling trees and getting more sunlight on the ground, you're going to get more of a response on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of stuff is as good as planting. I'm not saying yeah. don't plant. I'm just saying meter your expectations. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to plant some oak trees so that there's some acorns, there are species that are native to Kansas. Um, there are species that will produce acorns in a short period of time, um, relatively. I mean, it, mm-hmm. some trees, it literally takes 50, 60 years before they will start producing their first crop or more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there are some species of oak that'll produce earlier, but it's in the grand scheme of things, you're not talking about providing a large supply of food to deer. I mean, you're talking about planting, let's say you plant a thousand trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 15 to 20 years, they're all dropping. If they, you can get some early drop species, that's still very small yep. food biomass for the food yep. and all for all the deer. I mean, and th- think deer aren't going to be the only ones eating it. There are a lot of, uh, acorn users, uh, squirrels use them. 
turkeys use them, blue jays use them, you know, so all that work, um, you just can't, just can't count as that addition to the property is going to be changing something antler wise. Um, it's not going to be changing the health profile of all the deer that use it. What you can do is the stuff that you're already doing is fire cutting trees and on a scale of five, 10, 15 acres, getting as much food on the ground as possible. Um, now you're in a place that has a lot of, um, supplemental resources of food at other times of the year, all the, all the ag that's around that's planted commercially, mm-hmm. you're eating that. That's when they're growing antlers. That's when they're healthy. Um, but you're, you're also interested in hunting. And that's another thing we talk about is in the why, why do you want to plant these? Well, if you want to plant something that's dropping part of your decision of what you're going to plant should be, to satisfy your goals and you guys own the property because you're interested in the legacy of stewardship, but you also were interested in hunting. I mean, you're forming a career around it, Mm -hmm. right? So you want deer coming to those trees that you're planting in the fall. So think about when they drop um, and will it be in tune with the hunting season? So there's, there's some research that can be done. Right. Um, So, so if just to like recap, if I, well, kind of a recap. If I, if I flew out to you today and I was like, Hey Matt, the Kansas City is yours. <laughs> like I just hand you a hand, sign some paperwork. It's like, it's yours. And you went down there and you're like, man, I just want, I want this timber structure to be a little different. Like I want it, I want to have some different timber, like, like come here. Like it doesn't need to be a fast change, but like over time, I really want this to be different. You'd be picking up the chainsaw and you'd be burning the area. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I, I think what we talked what we talked about um, two years ago mm-hmm. was legit. Like, if I mm-hmm. if you guys were Matt, here's the keys. What would you do with it? And that is what I would do with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you want to designate sections of the property. Um, like I remember, we predict we tried to predict what deer movement was going to be. The creek ran north south. It's kind of a north south oriented property. Mm-hmm. Creek went right up, generally up the middle of it. Um, kind of, kind of ran from the Southeast corner to the, um, yeah, Southeast corner to the Northwest corner, if I remember a little bit, but, um, and then you had, um, to the West of the Creek was your, was your, uh, soybean field or whatever mm-hmm. was going to be planted out there. So, I, and then when you got really high up, the Creek also continued running in that Southeast to Northwest direction. So my prediction was that generally animal movement was going to be, north south along the creek but then they would be doing these jaunts from the bottom up to the food and back and then mm-hmm. you could catch deer coming that direction yep um i'm guessing that that is still holding true just because you know god made the ground the way it is and that's the that's the terrain that's that's literally the topography of it and you can't change that mm-hmm. but what you can do is do these micro influences where you say okay um, the deer were bedding in the southeast corner because of how much ground cover there was. Where can we replicate that? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I'm I'm struggling a little bit to remember the areas we designated that you would start creating more yep. of a similar feel. But if you went into another part of the property and said, let's open it up, let's get more ground cover, so that deer are bedding either there as well or they're they're making these micro movements, those are things that you can actually do. Um, and so I'm guessing our decision, uh, tree, you know, what we, what we sat down, I remember sitting at the cafe and being like, well, you know, how do you think you're going to hunt it? Mm -hmm. Um, 
what, what you know what's your access like can you walk along this line can you get in equipment here um you know we talked about all that stuff you got to think about the logistics of it and then we laid it all out that's why i asked are you seeing some and honestly two years is not that long right um it takes it takes time everything mm-hmm. takes time and in fact there's no there's no point b in this journey guys there's not a if we just do these things in X number of years or months, we're going to have a great property. Nope. Right. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. friend Craig, Craig talks about it like this. It's a lifestyle. Yep. You're yep. always managing. You're right. always doing something. You're always tweaking. Um, so, you know, something could happen. You could have an EHD breakout. You could have a windstorm come through or a tornado that knocks down half the, half the trees or literally none of that can happen. And deer just start changing mm-hmm. because one of your neighbors um, changes what he produces or she produces, uh, or they, they put a field in the CRP that wasn't. Um, so it changes deer movement. You're always going to have to be adapting. So mm-hmm. um, you should always be looking at it and thinking uh, what's working, what's not, um, you know, and then really what it comes down to is hunting it. That's one of the best things. I don't have that experience there, but I can tell you the places that I've hunted, um, I'll give you an example. My, my in-laws, one of the places I hunt here in New York, uh, is my in-laws, uh, farm and they've only owned it four or five years. Um, one, one of the, one of the parcels and, uh, just had a major timber harvest on it. Uh, this past last summer, this fall was just so different. I mean, it, it really was like night and day because we treated, they, they treated a good chunk of the property. Um, they actually made more pasture that was nothing but forest, um, did a silvo pasture treatment in a good chunk because they have livestock. So they have some space for their animals to be with a little bit of shade. They did some uneven age management in part of the forest where they just removed some trees and, uh, like I'm relearning it, but I had mm-hmm. it down before the summer. Um, so the same thing could happen. One of, one of your neighbors could change what they're doing and all of a sudden the deer start doing something different. Right. Um, so you adapt. Yep. Yeah. Did, did Matt, did that, uh, did all that timber work affect that property positively or negatively or neither for hunting? Um, yeah. For hunting. I'd say if anything, positively, um, the places that were really open, I kind of predicted we would not see as much daylight use. Um, and that was not the case. Uh, actually one of the most, uh, visible places where we saw deer, not only deer, the better bucks on the property were where, where it was opened up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happened where it was situated with food and some other cover. It's a pretty narrow property, but even in the, in the midst for people that are a little nervous about treating a property, even during deer season, you don't, you don't move deer off of where they live. Um, right. they're, they're deer have something called a very strong site fidelity, which is a fancy way of saying, once they have set up shop and they have a, a core area and a home range, they're loyal to it. Very, very rarely and almost never will a deer be disturbed to the point where it goes completely someplace else. Um, they may change their behavior on a day to day basis when they're active, um, what cover they use, the more pressure they get. Um, so, you know, even in the middle of the deer season, if you have a, if you have the potential of cutting some trees, if you're working with a forester and you're in line to get some work done and they say, uh, listen, this October and November is the time the market's hot. 
you can make money. The ground is, is dry enough and we won't be back through here for a while. You shouldn't hesitate. Right. Um, you know, the deer, the deer aren't going to leave one and two, you really got to think about the long term, Like we just talked about with the lifestyle, like long term, it's going to improve. And I can guarantee you, um, the property I just mentioned, uh, it needs one whole growing season that the cut basically ended at the end of the growing season. So there was sprouting of stump sprouts and annual plants on the disturbed soil where the tires from the skitters were, like there was a bunch of pokeweed. Um, there was a, there was a lot of these annual plants that show up that the deer were actually really eating, but there wasn't much visual cover. There wasn't a lot of ground cover. It was still pretty wide open. In fact, I felt like I, I had the ability to shoot my rifle really long distances in some of the more open spots. Mm -hmm. But once it goes through one growing season, it's going to be chest high. Um, cause there's just so much sunlight in hitting the ground. It's going to be hard to hunt after this year. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah. So just to like, um, put a final recap on this last topic with betting. What, what me and Nate are doing is like, as you probably remember, Matt, where there's, where there's timber, like we're talking in most cases, at least 60, 75% to a hundred percent canopy closure. It just, there's nothing, um, there's no four B really material, on the ground. So we are, I mean, I think we've probably cut and sprayed 50, close to 50 trees and really designated bedding areas. Cause there's no, like besides the Southeast that we've already talked about, there's nothing very specific that we know for sure deer bedding besides that. I mean, and it's super frustrating because getting to stands has been impossible. I mean, we are bumping deer everywhere because there's no specific bedding area. And even, I know, even when we have these designated bedding areas, deer just, they'll bed where they want to. Um, but it's, it's, it's been rough getting into spots just because they'll, they're just hanging out. Yeah. Wherever. Which also creates, um, not enough sun to provide fuel for burn. So I guess that's the transition we're making now is getting the sun in there. We're hoping to do, um, like with, with you, Matt, we talked about getting into that East side and trying to burn some of those good bedding areas. We just like, from our experience, we just I mean, we're not burn experts either, but we just can't like get enough fuel to really get a fire through there. Um, we, we did our first yeah. side burn last year and we did it in like the zero canopy closure, just to open like the brome areas. Um, and we, we let them work into the woods as deep as they would go, but they wouldn't go more than 10, 20 yards into the timber just cause there's not enough fuel source. So that's something that we're transitioning into. Um, and a lot of that, like we don't have in some of the Southeast, we have some taller grass that would take good, but a lot of it is the multiflora and the buckbrush and the gooseberry, which are just, I don't know. I just think you need a pretty good fire to get those to burn. Yeah. How, how was part of doing the, the burn that you did do? I remember watching that and it's okay. I mean, it, you do what you can, yeah. right? So, uh, um, how'd that feel to go through that process? It oh, was it, yeah, like it was, the best feeling it ever. <laughs> it was awesome. Just watching like just a, such a big change, like, you know, like at, at one minute, there's just all this, all this dead cover and then it's just ash. And it just, you just feel like, uh, so much of this land management stuff, like we've talked about is slow, but like this fire was like, it was like a fast management thing. At least it felt like, I know the progression is slower, but, um, that was super and awesome. Things sprout up like fast. I mean, just the green yeah. growth that we came back to was just amazing. Um, and we did see yeah. some, some plants like species change out there, um, in that brome, but it was, yeah, it was great. I just, we do like Tom's saying, we just want to do more than the timber. So. 
That's great. You guys did that. If I remember, it was like March mm-hmm. yeah. time yeah. frame. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, which is which is a good time to burn. You're removing the the material on the top, but because the the plants are dormant, the, uh, you're not going to change the composition much. But right. what you can do is kind of reset it. Mm-hmm. If you did a late growing season, that's a that's that's a dormant season burn. If you did a late growing season burn when the grasses are starting to dry a little bit at the end right. of the summer, um, but they still have energy and resources in the in the plant itself above ground, you can actually start changing the composition of the grasses to be more forbs. So if you did it like August, early September timeframe, um, you would get a response rate. Um, it, especially if you did it in August as opposed to September, um, right away there'd, there'd be plants starting to sprout up, but then from there on out, at least for the next three or four years, it would, it would maintain it until you have to redo it and do it again. Right. So it's kind of the seasonality of fire uh, plays a part in that. But, the reason I asked that is I, I figured you'd say that. I mean, just being part of some of that stuff in the past is uh, it's it's kind of it's a neat thing to. I mean, it's almost addictive, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To, to the degree of where you know hunting is addictive too, is to do something to the ground to the land, and see a response. Um, you get that kind of just to bring it back to the original question of what the plant, you get that if you put a food plot in and deer come to it, you feel it. Mm-hmm. You yep. get that if you put a, a small orchard in and the deer come there, you feel that. Um, but it's, but it's that and it's deeper. It feels like when you're doing some of this other stuff, because you have the power to change. Um, and, and the scale at which you can change the ground when you start using some of these other techniques like the real tech technique that like Aldo Leopold talked about where, you know, the ax is what he said, which is we, today we use the chainsaw. The only thing they, you know, he would probably say today that didn't get mentioned back then is herbicides because the technology is there, but um, the ax, the plow, he added the cow, you know, actually livestock was a way they managed land or fire and fire, especially, um, you just see this instantaneous change with fire. It happens so fast. Um, and you can treat acres and acres and acres of it. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll get into some um, question actually. Yeah. yeah. So I could, I feel like I could talk for days or I ask questions for days about late growing season burn. I just, Matt, one thing I don't understand is how, how are you getting fuel for that? Like, I don't, like late August, our property is green. Like you think so? Yeah, yeah, it is mostly. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's green. So, I mean, oh, how, it's going to be green. Yeah. How are pro- so? It where's the fuel right. there? I guess is yeah. my question. It, it's the amount of moisture in the plants, and and you also the the weather. Now, I'm not a prescribed burn boss, but I've been around enough. I'm not licensed to do that, but I've been around enough people, and her, and especially some colleagues and friends that are in different places that I can kind of give you guidance on this. But, um, at that time of year, the plants are still green, but if you think about pick, pick a plant or even like a soybean, you know, it starts to turn yellow. It's, it's starting to senesce. It's changing the composition. It's getting ready to go into dormancy. There is a certain time of the year, even in late August, mid to late August where everything is green and it looks, uh, it looks like everything is lush, but it's starting to dry out. And mm-hmm. yep. 
a lot of it, especially at that time of year, depends on weather. If you can pick it at the end of the growing season, things are going to look green. And the weather has the right humidity, air temp, the right air humidity, mm-hmm. um, that will actually fuel the fire. Now, you do need fuels. Yeah. Um, and if you're burning in a place in the forest that has 60, 70% or more uh, canopy closure, shade is going to kill the fire. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually, you can carry a fire through there, but it's much more difficult. But the response afterwards is um, similar to what we just talked about with grasses versus forbs. It's the same thing in the forest. There's no difference there other than it's, you're adding in the woody component. Is right. You're not changing the composition. So think about like this. Think about a part of the property, like the southeast corner, which is already open. There was a bunch of dead and dying trees in there. You guys actually started to do more girdling and cutting. But um, there was a significant percentage of the canopy that was open compared to other compartments. What did you say earlier? Yep. It was about 40% open? Yeah. Right? Yeah, to forty percent open. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, and in other places, it's only ten percent or less open. So, if you were to go in the southeast corner and burn it with that much sunlight coming in, um, and the response rate would be very different than if you went to a place that was, te- you know, ten percent open or less, was just mm. mostly shade. The the plants that grow back are are going to be very different. So, it's actually the combination of the timing of a fire and how open the canopy is. Okay. And I wouldn't take that description and say, okay, then I need to treat, um, of the 80, every forested acre, uh, and open up the canopy. That is actually not what I would do. I would designate certain places. This is goes back to our, our cafe discussion. Where do I want the deer to bed? Where do I want them to feel the safest? When I, when I enter the property, I don't want to spook deer. So I want to, ensure, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to guarantee nothing's a guarantee, but you want to ensure the highest chance that the deer are bedding in these two or three spots, those designated bedding blocks of 10, 15 acres or whatever they are or less. Those are the areas I would make sure are really open and I would burn on a rotation of three years or, or more frequently than that to just make sure that that cover is there and it's staying in good forb content and you're doing the burns at the right times of the year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what your, what your, what your question is, how is it going to burn? There's no fuel. If you pick one of those blocks that's 90 to 95% canopy closure. Yeah. There's no, there's no fuel there because there's no sunlight. Yep. Um, so even if you did carry a fire through there, if there was enough of a, of a wind and the humidity was right and you could carry a low intensity fire, most fires that you want to put through these woods has to be low intensity. Yeah. Flame lengths and heights of like mm-hmm. six inches, eight inches or less. Mm-hmm. You don't want an inferno going through there. I'm sure that's what some people are thinking when we're talking about this. Yeah. You want a, a low intensity creeping fire that's almost boring to watch yep. to work their way through the, the woods, but it's going to consume the fuels that are there. Um, and if you, if you did it in the right places, you don't have to burn the entire property, but if you do it in the right places, you're going to make the plants that grow there be the ones that you want to be there. Right. Um, it's okay if big chunks of the property are closed canopy and are 90% shade and you never burn them. And in fact, you might want to be sitting on the edge of it with a rifle because you'll see deer walking through it. Um, you know, that that's okay too. That's, that's 
man, that, that's where I get the most enjoyment is this like playing, playing designer and mm-hmm. figuring out the property and saying, how do I want it to look? What do, what, what do I want to do? Yep. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's a consideration. Um, but it, just cause it's green doesn't mean it won't burn. It, it has a lot to do with weather a lot. Right. And timing. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Um, well that, that's a lot we need, <laughs> we need to unpack, but that's, that's great info for us. Um, so I kind of wanted to go through some updates since you've been, since you were there. Um, sure. there have been three bucks that have died on the Kansas City since you visited the only three. Two of them have been in the bean plot in unit three, and my buck last year was in unit five along the creek, basically right where you're thinking. And that buck came out of the southeast bedding, and I just grunted him right right to us. But the other ones have been in the food source, um, mm-hmm. which last year, that kind of screwed us up, killing Tom's buck so early because we didn't go into the offseason thinking we needed to manage or change much, uh, which, I mean on a property you're getting to know really we like we were pretty slow with making changes just because we wanted to see how it's evolved and stuff. But like that, yeah. that whole kill was like, Hmm, like we really don't need to do much. That was really easy. We planted this plot, but basically um, we've worked in the Southeast bedding. We've done some different food plot ideas, but it's mainly been a bean and brass mix in unit three throughout different times of the year. Um, the clover plot in the North that we visited, um, it was just an open area when you were there, but we, I mean, we took out a bunch of timber in there. Um, we've made that a good, good clover plot. Um, and that's unit four. Um, and you know, I mean, big. we've opened, expanded that probably like yeah. four times as big yeah. as when you're there, Matt, right. we've grilled trees around to provide more sunlight. I mean, we saw a night and day difference Huge. between this last fall and the fall before they didn't use it at all the fall before. Cause it was tiny. Um, and we did not kill enough timber around it. Uh, it didn't have enough sunlight. Um, but this last year, I mean, yeah, all of our bucks were, it was were consistent. Were, yeah. Consistent does. Yeah. Um, so that well, was a good thing. I remember thing. that spot. I, and I remember standing there and you guys were just working there, right? Yep. Um, when I was, when I checked in on you yesterday. Yep. Um, so you guys, you guys were just working there and I remember standing there talking about what could be planted there and, and, and thinking about it and, I going back to the discussion early on about um, kind of the general flow of deer at the 30,000 foot level. I remember asking you guys about that Northern part because that's where the cover extended into your neighbor's property and access talking about coming in along that line. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. And also that North West corner of the property um, where the Creek kind of like oxbows. I'm right. going to remember that now kind of like kind of oxbows there was actually a fair amount of buck sign out of any place. That's where there was some buck sign. Um, so that's, that's been a, uh, a pleasantly surprising element of the property is that compartment. Yeah. 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 So one thing I was going to say is that unit six that you and Alex both were like, this is where you were like, I bet fawns, I bet does will drop their fawns here. And we bumped a fawn like that, like a few weeks later, we bumped a fawn right in that area. So props to you. You're all over that one, but you guys were both like, Oh man, I'd sit here. Thompson. I have not hunted that unit yet because it's impossible to get to like shooting down that North property line. seems like a really easy idea. And we've like, we worked on the access a ton this last summer, but we're just just still, still too loud. Yeah. We were just bumping deer and, um, the, I mean, the best option is walking on our neighbors because yep. it's open pasture. 
um, basically all the way along our north oh, yeah. north fence. And we've we've used that option a couple times, but we don't want to like like over. I mean, he's a hunter oh, too, yeah. So he's out. He he's out some evenings. He, I mean, yeah. he gave us permission probably seventy five percent of the time, which yeah. is great, but it's just tricky, like. How do yeah. how do we get back get there? It. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that unit six that I, they I, bed I back there. I remember you guys actually saying to me to both of us, uh, "Where on here do you think mm-hmm. we're going to kill our first buck?" Mm-hmm. And I do remember thinking that corner. It just felt like it was going to be a place you could catch a deer cruising during the rut. But if you can't get there, you can't get there. Right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff like talked about learning a property. Um, something might look like it's as black and white on paper, just go do that. Yep. But then you try it. I mean, only a fool would continue doing something if, uh, if it wasn't working right. And just keep yeah. doing it, keep doing it. And yeah. there's a lot of, um, unfortunately there's a lot of hunters that continue to go to the same stands because it was what grandpappy did. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that's where we should go and, and deer learn what you're doing. So, yep. um, it's interesting. It's been like, we've talked to other people that have hunted our property, like back, like a long time ago. And they're like, yeah, we killed, we killed our bucks in the East fence line. It's like, how, <laughs> like how, I mean, they they just don't like Thomas and I are probably overthinking it. Like they were probably just going into hunt where they thought was good. And yeah, we're, well, we're thinking about wind. Anything goes right. Yeah. I mean, we're thinking about wind and access and bedding. We're like, we can't bump this buck and stuff. I think that's kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit. Spencer, when we had, we had Spencer new hearth, new hearth down, he killed our, like the biggest Kansas city buck yet in December. And what he was saying is like, man, I'd probably pick a handful of the best rut days of the year. And I would just full on send it through the whole property and find a tree on that East fence line where, you know, bucks are working along the Creek too. And he's like, I wouldn't for like, get a, get a win that works most of the, like, but yeah, pretty then, good. Then but then just my, send it through. Then the my head explodes all day because there's no wind Yeah, that works. Uh, yeah, like, and it's our, loud. Since our property is like the 80 uh, acres, it's a rectangle and it, it's the long way North and South. Um, like it's tough cause the, obviously a North wind is, is typically what we're getting. So it doesn't like bode well for a ton of different options. Um, but yeah, it's, we're still tr- trying so, to figure out that East fence line. I, I, I agree with him. I agree with Spencer that there, that is how I hunt my season is that there are certain days that I don't care what the wind is doing. Um, I just, just say I'm going to the best spot and yep. I hunt them light up until then. And I just sit there and I'm probably going to bust some deer, but there's a chance that a deer um, might get busted and, and get scared. And an hour later might come back. And I do it late enough in the rut that, um, you know, I do a peak rut, but I, I do just say, you know what? I don't care what the wind's doing. I have friends that are like, Oh, you, you're a fool. You're going in with the wind <laughs> yeah. the wrong direction. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's times that it, it, it's a crapshoot at that time of the year anyway. So you mm-hmm. just, you just do it in the, and it would make sense to be on the East, uh, boundary line. I think if you were going to pay attention to wind, um, I'd go on the days when the wind was the lightest and go in in the dark and sit on that line in the morning, hoping that the, uh, the sun is going to warm up that slope because there's a little bit of a slope to it because Mm -hmm. it's going down to a Creek and, and at least bring a thermal up from the Creek and push that out into the, into the fields to the East of you. Um, 
but I mean, what the heck do I know? I'm not, I've never hunted it. I <laughs> no, mean, I that, like that. I like that. that, thought. that, that that's the only thing you can do. I mean, I, I'd start picking times and places that think you think it might work. And you know, there's strategy to all of this, but don't overthink it during the rut. Just, Just you, go. you spend all these other days. I watch you guys, you know, I see it. You're doing all this other work. There's a key couple weeks there that really, you literally could walk in and bust a deer at your best buck. Let's say you go in and you watch him get up in your headlamp and run. To me, I would not say game is over. I would just try to, like, whatever, if you do it on your way there, I would still continue going to that stand because a lot of deer will, will double back. Um, if you did it, if you busted the deer right under the stand where you wanted to sit, I'd go to a different stand. I wouldn't stop hunting. But he's going to lose interest in whatever you were within an hour, much less to find a doe and start chasing it. She might, she didn't get busted by you and she might bring you right back. You got to sit in a tree at that time of year as much as you can. Right. Yeah. All right. That's, that's, that's good. All right. Now we're going to transition, um, sort of similar topic, but we have an idea we want to toss at you, Matt, um, about how to change up our bean plot. So me and Spencer were, um, do we go on some public land nearby our 80 and, this like in the morning because like late season mornings are kind of hit or miss. So, um, this field that we were looking over was actually on private. We were on public looking at private and they around their whole ag field, um, was like a, a bumper, I'll call it of like warm season grasses and maybe a couple cedars in there. And they absolutely love this field and it was picked. I mean, it was like picked beans um, so technically speaking, like we had a lot better food in our 80, but we can't get a deer to go into our bean plot, um, in the, in the morning. And I know some of that is like that the, the plot's only been around for two years. Um, mature bucks, like don't recognize our, that plot as, as food exactly yet. It's that transition is going to happen slowly over the next couple of years as fawns are sticking around and understanding that bean, bean plots, bean plot, not pasture, but an idea I want to toss at you. Tell me if I'm just completely not thinking straight, but we have a lot of leftover brome, um, towards the West, towards the road, um, that just, that's not being used yet. We're trying to figure out what to do there. If we, like we talked about with you, like setting up a permanent barrier instead of the Egyptian weed every year. But we've wondered about running a 20 to 30 yard wide bumper along our bean edge, um, with warm season grasses, uh, maybe like throw in, like transplant a couple, like a cedar or a couple cedars in there. Um, and kind of having that bumper run if you like for the people listening who haven't seen um our 80 um imagine our bean plot as a a big capital b um there's like the straight edge which is on the west side and then the two humps are like go on the east side um it's about four acres Mm -hmm. um the humps of it we would like to put like warm season grasses yeah quick buffer yeah like a buffer area so this last along the tree line. Yep, yep. exactly. Along the tree line. And this last, yep. this last fall deer were like, they use a South. So we called it the South beans. Just like the lower part of the capital B is mm-hmm. South beans. Top is North beans. They use the South beans quite a bit more for some yeah. reason. Um, it didn't do well the first year. So deer didn't use it, but they, they were hammering it um, this last year. Um, we think possibly cause they felt more safe cause that Egyptian wheat actually, um, we redesigned the Egyptian wheat and it kind of ran, on the on the west side of that B, um, so they felt a little tighter. It's a little that, lower and a little yeah. more covered down there. So we're 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 also going to not to like 
change subject, but we're also going to run Egyptian wheat like on the on the long side of the capital B just mm-hmm. to um, make things tighter. Yeah, make shrink the shrink the feeling of that plot. Um, and I guess for archery needs because we're bow guys. But what's your thoughts on running like a a, a warm season buffer uh, with a couple of steeders? Um, and we've like to be honest, we've actually thought about planning mm-hmm. um, like a, like some persimmon or something in there, like just a uh, long term. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts there? So here, uh, it's a it's a yes and no answer um, to that. So uh, yes, I like the idea of softening the edge of the tree line mm-hmm. to accommodate. Um, and, and enticing deer out of the woods a little earlier and, and feeling, feeling like they can stage before they walk into the food. I, I do want to talk about the beans, uh, at some point, but yeah. I know we're running out of time here, but, but I, I like the idea of softening and that's, that's called soft edge where somebody will take something that goes from a, um, a straight up flat field or something that's cultivated like food plot or commercial that yep. just has trees run along it. And you start knocking within the first, um, it, it, some, one technique is called edge feathering. Um, but what you're trying to do is soften it instead of that hard line of trees, you might remove, you know, 80, 90% of the trees, um, mm-hmm. along the first 10 or 15 acres or 15 yards. And then you go another 10 or 15 yards in the woods and you remove about 50% of the trees or kill them. You don't have to yeah. drop them. You can, uh, um, girdle them and you go another 10 or 15 yards in and you might only do about, uh, 15 to 20%. And then you leave every tree after that. And what happens is you have this gradual transition of mature trees to sparse, mature trees to very, very sparse, mature trees and lots of growth, lots of ground cover to a field. Right. And, uh, that that's called soft edge. Um, alternatively, you can just push your field in instead of cutting trees. Cause I know you got some massive hedge and, and Osage orange and, yeah. um, other trees there is just don't plant right up to the edge and let that happen naturally. Um, or this is the, it depends or no answer. I don't know if I would do warm season grasses. Mm. Um, you could, and I don't know if I would do cedar. Cedar is actually a pretty invasive plant, but, right. um, and in Kansas in particular, it's, it's a true, it's a tree that uh, a lot of folks are trying to fight, but they're everywhere. They're naturalized at this point. I will tell you that I've learned from the big, big buck kind of side of things that I've heard from uh, a friend in Iowa who's a biologist um, that he's, I think not only anecdotally, but documented that a lot of hardwood um, hardwood stands, or hardwood blocks of timber that are lined with cedars that have like that cedar um, lot growth that kind of basically fills in and the visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, he's seen some of the bigger bucks tend to use those blocks. Now, I don't know how, how he's documented it, but so, at, you know, at, at a, at a element of you asking, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't sound like a bad idea. I think it's generally a good idea. If it was me, instead of planting native warm season grasses, um, you already have that there. Um, you know, you got brome and other things that are, that are literally they're warm season grasses. They, yeah. they grow most in the, in the warm weather. Um, and we're planting cedar. I guarantee you that there are cedar yep. uh, seeds in your seed bank. Um, 
whether or not you cut some trees or a combination of cutting trees and letting the, the field grow in a little bit or just grow the field back in, you could just let nature take its course and see mm-hmm. what grows back. You don't have to plow right in. You know, you could literally leave a strip along the side. It'll take a season or two and you could use fire to manage it. Um, but just see what comes back or you can plant something. This is kind of going yeah. along the discussion of the planting of the oaks. Um, if it was me, I would just step back and see what happens yep. and, and, and don't till it and see what starts growing there. Um, but you're going to get brambles and trees and shrubs and grasses growing in. Um, it all depends on management. Um, I, you could also uh, do an actual strip along the edge of the field, which is technically the edge of the field right now where you maintain it in a mowed path and then choose another, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 yards out from that and let that go so that you literally have a fire break behind it. Mm -hmm. And if you have to burn that strip, the deer are end up going to walking up and down that path, the North South line of the bee. Yeah. They're going to come out in the field or what would be the edge of the field out of the woods and walk up your mode path. And if you're on it in a tree stand right there, they've got 20 yards of cover between them and the beans. And they're just, you're going to literally have a shooting lane in front of you. Mm-hmm. I would, I would think hard about doing that too. Mm-hmm. So, um, the concept, yes, hundred percent, the okay. technique of how you get there, there's a bunch of different yep. ways right. to do it, but, um, yeah, that's good. I, and I also think the deer might have been using the lower B again, we're talking about right now, some of the best bedding covers in that Southeast corner. So wouldn't, it kind of makes sense that they're coming out of that Mm -hmm. walking across the Creek or up the Creek a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, there's almost like an on-ramp in the, in the topography where you guys killed that Turkey. There's like that little clearing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You're probably just naturally come right up there into that part of the beat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they do. We, we called that Freddie's corridor and they, I mean, Freddie was our, our number one buck who got shot by a neighbor, but he, I mean, he used that religiously, um, uh, two years ago and then less this past year, but deer, like we're still just, um, hammering that spot. So, okay. That answers my question. Yeah. I think, yeah, we just need to soften that edge. And I think maybe just cutting some of those trees, like you kind of described it's, Matt. Is, it's tough because they're not like you, these. If you're going to do it. To, if you're going to do it and, and you don't have the time to do it and you're already seeing heavier use in the lower part of the bee, I don't know how easy that it is to hunt in the Northern part of the bee, the Northern section. Yeah you might want to concentrate on that. Alternatively, if the Northern part of the bee is the easier place to get in and hunt, I'm guessing that might be the case, remembering where we parked and everything. But if that's, if that's the case, you may want to concentrate just on the Northern part of the bee yep. and see how that works. Right. Just kind of um, do a little test run before you do the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, you only have so many hours in the day and I right. know one of you has a kid and the other one has a kid on the way or you both have kids. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> we, um, we both have kids and Tom's got a second one on the way. Oh, well, congratulations, but, yeah. Tom. Thank you. Um, you know, time is going to get less and less. So, you know, you want to, you want to maximize your efficiency when you're out there. So just kind of pick those, those different things. Plus, you know, there's some people go overboard. I, I in terms of management, right. it's crazy to say that, but I know that there are some people that will take a tactic or, or technique and they just apply it everywhere mm-hmm. and you don't have to do that. Just, you know, use, use that brain in your head and say, all right, well, where, where's the easiest place to get in and out of. And let's, I saw you guys were making deer pinch down yesterday mm-hmm. in your clover plot. I love it. I think that's awesome because it's just being like, all right, let's force them through this little spot. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So it's same, same kind of idea. Yeah, we we were talking about it yesterday because there are places on the property that we have not touched, but there's places that we've done a lot of work on. So we're kind of doing that. We don't want to do one thing for everywhere because we want we want some areas that are shaded and just huge big timber. But other places we want we need to re- we know we know we need to remove some timber and um, the 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 interesting thing I in my head as like being the guy that's firing up the chainsaw down there is that edge along the beans is just gnarly as crap. It's just these those Osage that just go straight out. And I mean, you drop one tree, yeah, you've got, huge, Oh, right? they're huge. You've got a few hours of work per huge. tree. <laughs> it's just nuts. Yeah. Probably more than that. I, I do remember, I mean, you're talking about these legacy, legacy trees that have been there probably hundreds mm-hmm. of years. They almost look like, and they're mm-hmm. just these giant arms. Like the, the top is not a, top they're right. huge right which is why you pro- in some places you may be cutting but in most places you're probably going to be extending the the shortening the field mm-hmm. you're taking away from where you're planting yeah which is fine exactly. uh, that, that, that's fine if you don't need the production if you're not relying on the, the source of income for for the beans and you guys aren't mm-hmm. i mean as of right now um but i like the idea of keeping a trail mint mode for the deer to use, but also as a management technique, because let's say you do have the need to burn it because it's getting a little bit too hairy. It's get, it's getting small trees in it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's going to be forest and you got to burn it. Well, you need some way to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good stuff. So I'm going to, um, just, uh, you can quickly answer these questions, Matt. Um, I know we're running out of time, but we had some in- Instagram questions come in. Um, Here's a good one that you're probably not going to like me asking, but number one priority, if you had to do like God came down and said, you can only do like one thing for a brand new property. I know it depends on the property, but what's the number one priority. If it's like somebody's going to, um, manage for deer hunting, like food habitat, what, like, what would you say is the first thing that you'd start on most properties? Road system. I, I, I always look at access trails, like walking trails, but equipment, whether it's a four wheeler, a side by side or a pickup truck, how am I going to get to where I need to go? Um, because that's something I would want laid out first. Um, that's good. Yeah. All right, cool. And then another one, are there long-term problems with doe fawns going into heat and then having fawns at one year? No. Um, I mean the, the way it works with fawns, uh, breeding in their first year um, of life, really under their first year, is they have to reach a certain weight. Some states they have to get a certain size, basically. Um, it's not, and that's dependent on their birth date. So if, if a deer herd is um, really uh, pumping along and, and it's productive, and deer are being born, and there's enough food on the ground, in some ag-rich states that happens um, where many of the fawns are actually getting to a size by the first breeding season that they breed. Um, it doesn't cause any issues. Um, it actually just puts more bucks on the ground. Yeah. Um, some of the things that people get concerned about is, um, deer, uh, inbreeding a little bit. Some of it has to do with this late rut where you're wearing your bucks out, like these fawns that are coming of weight. Sometimes it doesn't happen until late in the season. And these Mm -hmm. bucks that are really kind of worn down, but, uh, there are no population level impacts that anybody should worry about that. So no, I would not worry about it. 
Okay. So when you came down, I remember you just like picking apart the 80 with trees and plants. This is that, this is that. How I get, we get questions all the time. How do you learn those things? Like, how do you know that's that? Any quick advice besides, I mean, oh, you've been, I know you've been spending a lot of time outside for like a long time. It's your, it's your career and everything, but any quick advice for learning trees, plants and stuff in your area? Yeah, I'll answer it. And then I'll ask you a question in return for you guys. Um, my, my answer is the quick advice is don't worry about people get lost in kind of the noise of all of it. Uh, go out on the property that you want to learn plants on and look around at what are the most common five species of trees. Start there. You could, you could go up to 10, um, you know, somewhere between five and 10, pick a number and just concentrate on those. At the very uh, least, you could concentrate on the most common species of tree. And you can tell species of tree by their bark, by their leaf shape. So whatever time of year that helps do that and learn that one. Mm-hmm. But if you can know the top five or 10 species and what they mean to deer, um, you can do a lot. Right. Um, I'll give you an example. If all you could do is learn one, let's say in 2021, you want your, your, your goal for this year was to learn one tree. Um, and you can do the same thing for one shrub and you know, maybe one grass species, those, those kind of breakdowns. But if you just learned one and it was something that you knew that deer either liked or disliked, you could do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you knew it was a species of tree that deer didn't do anything for deer, it took up space, took up shade, deer didn't eat any fruit from it. Um, when it, re-sprouted if you cut it they didn't like the leaves or the branches they didn't browse on it you could literally cut that tree and do nothing but positive uh positive things for the property if you knew it was something that now if it was a good timber species uh and you could make money off of it you could be changing the direction there but that that's my advice yeah. learn either the, the top five i didn't for the top five mm-hmm. how did you guys learn because i remember talking to you um, out there, we were talking about what was what. And in fact, some of the stuff I didn't even really know because I'm not from Kansas. I know mm-hmm. the plants in where I live, but we identified stuff together. How did you guys come at this point? I can tell that you guys know a bunch of stuff. How, how did you do it? My go-to is a plant app. <laughs> it's kind of cheating, but it's, it's the, the app's money. Uh, like, I mean, like it's, it's super it's helpful. It's free, but it's money. It's free, but it's, it's super helpful. So I, I mean, I'm taking pictures what, of everything. What app do you guys use? Um, Mine is, let me look it up quick. Um, it's the picture this. Um, that's just what I call it, picture this. And they always try to make you pay for it, but like the basic version, you can take as many pictures and they'll tell, it'll pop up and tell you. It does trees and those bark leaves and all the plants. And so that's been a, a huge help. But also I've just been getting different books and, and reading a bunch. Um, as far as specifics, like how to get like different types of plants of the same thing or different trees and whatnot, I've been... Tom makes fun of me, but I draw it out. Like <laughs> I have, I have a, I have a notepad and stuff and I, I draw it out. Cause as soon as I draw it out, it's ingrained, like putting a pin to it. It's like, Oh, that's, that's the difference. That's the minute difference that I'll be able to tell out these things. But yeah, the app has helped a ton. I'm just taking pictures constantly uploading it and seeing what's what, and just mem- like focus on remembering that stuff. But there's a bunch of apps out there. Yeah. There, there's some great apps. I mean, that's a great route. That's still thought that still checks the box of learning something. Yep. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 
don't get over, I guess my advice is don't get overwhelmed. Cause as I sit here, look out my, my window, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of trees in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can see there's about four or five trees that are pretty common. Yep. Just um, little by little. By the, what the bark looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, really quick yeah. off of that, Matt, do you have any, like, do you have any well-known plant app that people could check out that has worked, um, that you know of or, or not really? Um, the app I have on my phone, I don't use it a ton. Uh, it's called seek S E E K. Um, that's, that's a, that's an app that, uh, will do a plant identification for it. Gotcha. Cool. Is that free? Uh, yeah. Cool. I don't think I bought it. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So final question, just to wrap it up. Um, how can people get involved with the deer association, everything that's going on there? How can, how can they support you? Uh, great question. Thanks for ending on that too. Um, so we're, uh, we're available in a much, in many, many different ways. I, the, the easiest, quickest way is just go on to deerassociation.com and look at our website. Um, I'd say at a minimum, um, you don't have to pay for this. It's free is on our homepage. There's a little link there that says sign up for our newsletter. We put out a, uh, e-newsletter, um, every Thursday morning, every week that has updates on everything that has to do with our mission. Um, There's usually a feature article there that kind of leads it, but you'll see updates on chronic wasting disease work. You'll see updates on policy, uh, stuff that we're fighting for or against in the deer world. Um, So that's a a great free resource for everybody. Uh, If you're not a member, I would encourage you to join. Um, Just like any other NGO, we need members. Um, So that's, relatively low cost. It's $35 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I, I was, a, I'll tell you guys, I was a member a lot longer before as an employee. I joined, I actually started a local chapter in the state that I lived in and did that. And then there was an ad in for a, a job going way back. And I, I decided I wanted to change a career. I was a, I was a consultant, a wildlife and forestry consultant. I felt like working for an NGO. So I, I took a, a change there, but I'd say join would be the second thing. Yep. Um, and then we have lots of other ways to get involved. You could start a branch. Um, we have a monthly webinar series that you can tune into and learn. Um, we have conferences. Our local branches have events. Um, we have sweepstakes occasionally if you wanted to, to help us financially and, and try to win something. But you'll find all of that in the newsletter or on the website. So gearassociation.com, awesome. sign up for the free newsletter and join if, uh, if you feel like giving to an organization that, that cares about deer and you care about deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find myself on the, the deer association website frequently just for information and different things. And, um, you guys are do you guys still do the beer and deer web series, Matt? Yep. Our next one is actually Monday night of next week. Um, you can still sign up right now. I mean, you can sign up to the last minute, but this one's going to be a good one. If you like habitat, which we just spent a lot of time talking, um, Dr. Craig Harper, who there is a one of a kind university of Tennessee. Um, he is an extension wildlife specialist there, but we drag him all over the world with us doing classes. Um, he is a great speaker. So that is at 7 PM on Monday, the 8th. And I don't know when this is coming out. Will this come out by then? Yeah. Well, well, I'll try to drop it today. Yep. Okay. I think if you like habitat management, that is worth your one hour. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tune in. We'll give out, we're going to give out a prize, uh, probably one of his books. 
and uh, it, it'll be worth your time to listen in on. And you can actually tune into all of our, our uh, webinars on YouTube. You can mm. watch them right now because they go, they go on there. We record them and they go on there right after. Um, but yes, please tune in next week. You'll, you'll learn a lot about habitat management from really kind of one of the world's foremost expert on burning. Awesome. I'm going to be there. Well, Matt, we can't thank you enough. You're, you're just a wealth of knowledge and we really enjoy chatting with you. We, we got to get you back. I, w- I would love for you to be back during the first week in November sometime. So we need to chat about Absolutely. that. Yeah. Um, yes, we do. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't touch base on it and we don't, we, we won't go into it, but, um, we love seeing the, the things that deer association is doing for new hunters. We, uh, we're going to, we're keep, we're keeping that ball rolling on our side of things. And we've got, uh, four or five turkey hunts, uh, this spring. So, um, I guess we have quite a few new hunters that listen to this podcast. So always check out deer association for opportunities there. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch, man. We appreciate you joining us. I appreciate it guys. And, uh, kudos again on the thing you just mentioned. I'm real proud of what you guys are doing. You're real leaders in the space about getting new hunters out. So, but we appreciate the, the, uh, the time of being on here, you know, me personally in the organization. And, uh, I love being engaged with you guys both virtually and, and in person maybe someday again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's stay in touch and thank you. Definitely. Yeah, thanks Matt.